Let's pray together. Our Lord, you see each one of us as we come to you in various places with various needs, but for all of us, a common unifying thing is we need Jesus. More than we even presently know, we need him. And so we pray that through the unfolding of your word, you might open to us our eyes, that we might see Jesus. And seeing Jesus, we might be freshly astonished by him, astounded by him, amazed by him, in such a way that our hearts can't help but be drawn in worship to him. We pray that the person Jesus and his work would come larger than life today and fill the horizon of our eyes, that he would be what we see most clearly, and our souls would be satisfied in seeing him and drawn to him. Come do this and more than we know to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. My GCM, that's our smaller community group, began talking through this passage last week. And as we read through it, the first thing we actually started talking about was 24, right? Do you remember the show 24? Uh, Brilliant show, wonderful show, at least for the first few seasons, and then it got terrible. But at least for the beginning, it was, you know, this incredible personality, Jack Bauer, and this incredible show. And what was unique about the show was the concept of the show. Right, Each episode was this one hour, 24 episodes in a season, and all together it was one day. One season was essentially one day in the life of Jack Bauer. And do you remember how crazy it was, the things that Jack got done in one day? Right, You remember sitting around with your friends and talking and thinking to yourselves, does this guy ever eat or, or sleep? How come half an episode isn't just him going to the bathroom? Why doesn't that ever happen in the show, right? Like, how how does he do it? In one day, he'll be interrogating a terrorist in D.C. and stopping a bomb in L.A. and saving the whole world, and it's all in just one day's work. Mark 1, the passage we just read, is essentially 24 with Jesus. Okay, that's the passage we're camped out in. And so if you've got a Bible, turn there. Mark 1, verses 21 to 39, is a day in the life of Jesus, a 24-hour period in the life of Jesus. Verse 21, where the passage begins, is sunup on Saturday Sabbath morning. That's where the day starts. And when you get to the end of the passage in verse 39, it's sunup on the next day, on the following day, the Sunday morning after. It's one day, and in this one day, things will move incredibly fast. Mark loves to use the word immediately, and you'll see that word four times in this passage. Immediately, Jesus was doing this, and immediately, Jesus began doing that. In fact, the scene is going to change four times in this one day. Jesus is going to start in the morning by teaching in a synagogue and casting out a demon. And then immediately he's going to head to Simon and Andrew's house where he's going to heal the sick and cast out demons. And then you're going to see Jesus praying in a desolate place by himself. And then you're going to see Jesus leaving town to keep on preaching. And all of that, all that teaching and preaching and healing and casting out demons, all of that is in a day's work for Jesus. All in a day's work. And what you're going to see in this one day is to borrow the phrase of a preacher, you're going to see the authority and the priority of King Jesus. That in this one day, you're going to see the authority and the priority of King Jesus. Jesus, who in Matthew 1, 14 and 15, had declared, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, because I am at hand. I'm the king of that kingdom. And now in this text, you'll see the authority and the priority of that king. 
First, the authority. Here's how his day starts. Look with me at verse 21. It says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now you should know the they there. And they went into Capernaum. The they is Jesus and his newly recruited disciples. If you were here last week when Pastor Binu taught us that passage, you know that Jesus called James and John, Peter and Andrew, and he said, Come, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So Jesus and his newly recruited disciples, his small posse, sort of rolls into town, into Capernaum, and they attend service that morning. For all better words, they, they go to church, right? They go to synagogue that morning with this small crowd in Capernaum. Now, what you should know is service that day was like they had never experienced in their lives. Nobody in the congregation at Capernaum expected what they would encounter when Jesus showed up to church that morning. It was a service like they had never been prepared for and a service like they would never soon forget. Right? Even if you come to Seven Mile Road, if you come to church here, there's a certain flow to our service that you come to expect. We come to God in the beginning and we sing our songs, we confess our sins, we gather around His Word, it's preached, we come to the table, we respond, we fellowship. There's certain flow to what you come to expect. Nobody expected what service was going to be like in Capernaum that morning when Jesus showed up to church and nobody would forget what it was like as well. Here's what it says. Jesus immediately on the Sabbath, He entered the synagogue and was teaching. Verse 22, And they were astonished at His teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Here's the way it worked. If you were in Israel, there was only one temple, and that temple was in Jerusalem. There were no cars so that you could make that drive every weekend. So everybody either had to go to Jerusalem or they had to find some other way to worship. There was no way for everyone in the country to go to Jerusalem every weekend for Sabbath. And so what you began to see is synagogues pop up all over the place. Synagogues were local communities where you could come and read the scriptures and study and pray and worship because you weren't going to make it to the temple every weekend. So you'd go to synagogue. Well, all the priests were in Jerusalem because that's where the temple was. So in the synagogue, the best you could hope for was a very good layman, a godly educated layman who could read and teach the scriptures. Sometimes you might even get a scribe. Now a scribe wasn't like the rest of the layman. A scribe was a learned man. He, in our day, he, he went to seminary. He had degrees after his name. He knew the Bible backwards and forwards. He could teach. And so the best you could hope for is a scribe to teach at your synagogue. Well, Jesus shows up to Capernaum that morning, and the rulers of the synagogue invite Jesus to teach, and I want you to hear this. Nobody dozed off that morning. Nobody got distracted. Nobody was thinking about what to do after service that day. N nobody fell asleep on him. Every single person hung on every single word that came from his mouth. Mark tells us that the people in service that morning were astonished at his teaching. Astonished at his teaching. That when they heard this man speak, it was like nothing that they had ever heard before. They had been serviced to as many times as you've probably been to service. And yet there was something about this service that was unlike anything they had ever heard before. They were astounded, it says, at his teaching. 
Now, Mark doesn't give us the content of what he taught. Perhaps it's what he taught in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Maybe it was him declaring that the kingdom of God had come because he had come. Whatever it was, we're not told the content. What we are told is the response. That everyone who was at service that morning was astonished at his teaching. Verse 22, and not just astonished, they were astonished for or because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. They were astonished by his teaching because of the authority in which Jesus of Nazareth taught at the synagogue in Capernaum that morning. They were astonished because he taught with an authority that they had never heard before in the scribes. What does that mean? How did the scribes teach? The scribes taught like your pastors teach. When your pastors teach, they refer to this person or quote this person or tell you about this commentary because your pastors have no authority in themselves. All preaching is is stealing from smart people and telling it to you. That's what I do every week. I steal from as many smart people as I can because I'm deriving on their authority and then I'm presenting it to you. That's what every preacher does. There is no original idea that has ever entered this mind. There's no original thought under the sun. All we do is we do the best we can to pool what we know and present it to you. So when a scribe got up in a synagogue in Capernaum, he would say, Rabbi so-and-so has taught on this passage. Or scholar such-and-such has often said about this word. Or at best he would quote, and Moses our prophet once told us this. There were footnotes and quotes and commentaries and references. But when Jesus of Nazareth showed up to service that morning, there were no quotes. There were no footnotes. There were no commentaries. When they heard Jesus teach, they heard him say things like, You have heard it said, but I say to you. And they had never heard that before. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. No quote, no footnote, no citing another authority. Jesus was speaking as if he himself was the source of authority. Jesus was different than all the scribes. They were astonished at his authority because he spoke. And when he spoke, they weren't hearing someone who was speaking for God. They were hearing from God. Like they had never heard in a service before. This wasn't derived authority. It's sort of like a kid brother can't go to his older sister and go downstairs and say, Hey, you should go upstairs, clean your room, get ready for bed. The sister would be like, get lost. The best he could hope to do is to say, Dad said, you need to go upstairs, clean your room, and get ready for bed. Now that holds some weight. But it's even more if Dad goes downstairs. Dad doesn't have to reference anyone else. Dad looks and says, I'm telling you, go upstairs, clean your room, get ready for bed. The scribe at best could say, so-and-so once said, Jesus came that morning... And it was as if you were hearing from God himself. And the people began to say, what is this? 
They were astonished at his authority, at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. But listen, before they could fully even digest all that and process that, the service at Capernaum that morning gets unexpectedly and abruptly interrupted. Verse 23, before they could finish hearing him out, it says, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Pause there for a sec. So I picture Jesus standing in the pulpit like I'm standing now. And all of a sudden, a demon-possessed man in the congregation gets up and starts screaming. Now would you use your imagination with me for a moment? I mean, you imagine that right now the guy sitting next to you stands up and just starts screaming. Can you imagine the chatter sort of on your way home? You'd be nudging one and go, I, I always knew there was something off with that guy, right? I, I, I didn't like him from the first time I saw him. I mean, this guy just stands up in the middle of service and starts screaming, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I tell you, no one had been to a service like this. No one was prepared for Sabbath that morning. I mean, this man stands up, and, and what's puzzling here is, what you should note is, while the congregation is trying to figure out who is this man, do you notice that? Who is this that's speaking with this kind of authority? The demon has no question about who just came into church at Capernaum. The demon has crystal clear clarity about who came to service that morning. I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. It should serve, side tangent for a second, it should serve as a warning to us that you could have perfect theology and go to hell. It should serve as a warning to us. This, this demon knew everything there was to know. The Apostle James would say the same thing in the New Testament. You know that God is one, you do well, even the demons do. And shudder. This demon knows who this Jesus of Nazareth is, but he does not submit, does not adore, does not love, does not worship. Instead, he cries out in protest, in combat. It's not so much a question he asks in verse 24. Would you notice? It's not so much a question as much as to say, you've come to destroy us, haven't you? What have you to do with us? You've come to end us. Isn't that why you're here? This demon begins to say, listen, we know why you're here. And, and did you notice he uses the plural, us. It's this one demon-possessed man, but this demon screams out and says, you have come to destroy us. Now, it's either that this one man was himself possessed by multiple demons, or that this demon is sort of crying out on behalf of the entire kingdom of darkness. As if he's crying out for all his friends and his pals and say, you coming here is the end of us, isn't it? As if to say, the kingdom of God advancing means the end of the kingdom of darkness, doesn't it? It means bad news. It means judgment is coming for all of us. It's almost like if darkness had a voice every morning, it would scream out to the sun, you've come to end us, haven't you? If darkness could speak every morning, it'd be saying, the, the rising of you means the ending of us. And it's as if that demon in Capernaum saw the Son of God rise into the congregation, 
saw the Son of God dawn into that congregation, saw the Son of God emerge into that congregation, and knew this means the end of us. You have come to destroy us, haven't you? I know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. That's church that morning. Now I can tell you this. If a demon showed up while I was preaching, I, I would like to tell you that a great many heroic things would happen. And I would cast that thing out. I would wet my pants and then I would call on Pastor Binu or Sibi and I'd say, this must be in your job description, the exorcism of demons, right? I, I would have no idea. I mean, can you imagine what it was like to be at service in Capernaum that morning? But watch how Jesus responds. Verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Jesus, will you notice, isn't flustered. He doesn't flinch. He essentially says, shut up. Come out of him. And this demon almost pointlessly tries to resist. You notice he convulses and cries out with a loud cry, and yet he has no power but to obey and to do exactly what King Jesus said he must do. Did you notice that there's no technique here? It's not like Jesus pulled out his demon exorcism manual and said, listen, first got to ask, what's your name, what's your name? And then he waves some hands and incantation and makes some ritual, and that's the way in which he's going to draw out this demon. There is no technique. It's what's amazing. When you read about exorcisms outside of the Bible, there's all kinds of techniques about how you do it. In the gospel narratives, there's no technique because the point is not how did he do it, but who is the one doing this? The one who doesn't need to go through hoops. The one who simply says, shut up and come out. And this thing shuts up and comes out. Be quiet and come out of him. There is no technique because the point is not, how did this Jesus of Nazareth do it? But who but this Jesus of Nazareth is the one who's doing it? The authority is in him. And would you let this thought strike you as well? It struck me this week. I mean, when you're talking about demons and the demonic realm and the kingdom of darkness, this is the stuff they make horror movies out of. This is the stuff that keeps you up at night. This is the stuff that gives you nightmares. And yet, would you let it sink in that the thing that most terrifies us is terrified of him? That the thing that we're scared to death of is scared to death of him. And he's for us. What does that mean? What does it mean that the thing that terrifies you the most is terrified of him and he's for us? Who is this? And what kind of authority is this? That's what we're wondering. And that's what the people in that service was wondering. 27. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. That's the question that's emerging in the synagogue that morning. Who is this 
that teaches like this and then backs up that teaching by doing what he's doing? Who is this that even the demons obey his word? Do you see that Jesus had come, Mark 1, 14 and 15, saying the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And do you see what happens when the king comes into Capernaum? When the kingdom of God draws near to Capernaum that morning, he speaks with kingly authority so that the people are astonished. The demons are cast out. Lives, that means, are changed. Captives are set free. Light has dawned. Darkness is disappearing. The kingdom of God is appearing because the Son of God, Jesus the King, is appearing. Verse 28, And at once... His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. At once, his fame spreads, meaning if it were our day, that verse would read, Jesus was trending on Twitter. Jesus was blowing up Facebook. The bloggers were blogging. This was the day Jesus won the internet, right? Everybody is talking about him. And yet what's amazing about verse 28 is before the day of phones and social media and internet, everyone in Galilee was made aware of what Jesus of Nazareth had done that morning at church. Well, now the scene shifts. Service is over. Everybody goes home. You can imagine the conversations they had as they were walking home. And now Jesus does what most of you will do after church. Maybe you'll go home. Maybe you'll grab some friends and you'll go to eat. Well, Jesus does the same thing. He's going to go now to Peter and Andrew's house and watch how different the scene is. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Do you notice how different the scene is now? Before you had a public synagogue with this perhaps dozens, if not hundreds, maybe up to a thousand people gathered for worship. Now, you're in a private home. It's just Jesus, four disciples, the sick mother-in-law. Before you had this demon-possessed man, you had a loud cry, you had a strong rebuke, you had this dramatic exorcism, you had news spreading everywhere. Now, you have no press, no media, you just have this compassionate king who has come into this house. And there he finds a mother-in-law sick with a, a fever. And there you'll find no dramatic words come out of his mouth, no strong rebukes, no commands, no spreading word everywhere. It's just a sick lady. And so he goes over with no words. He holds her by the hand, lifts her out of the bed, and as soon as he does, the fever is gone. And this mother-in-law responds by serving them. I picture sort of my mother-in-law, right? If, if you came to my house, my mother-in-law would give you three cups of chai and then ask you if you wanted some snacks and then keep giving you second helpings. And if she was sick and then was made well, that's exactly what she would start doing, right? It's a beautiful picture, by the way, of the response that is fitting to those who have been touched by Jesus. She gets up. And begins to serve him and them. But is it not for us an encouraging thing that the king 
is capable to stroll into town and to combat the enemy and overwhelm the darkness and send and shut this demon up and everybody knows. And yet, this king is also compassionate and caring enough to come and lay hands on a woman who just has a fever and lift her up out of her bed. No one will know, no one will hear, and yet he's there to help. Again, would you notice, no technique. It's not like he's got a manual for how to heal. If you read the healings in the New Testament, they all appear different. Sometimes he speaks, sometimes he touches, sometimes he makes spit on the ground. I mean, they, there is no manual you can get from it. Because the point is not, how did he do this? But who is this that's doing this? Who is it that has authority to speak the way he speaks and cast out demons the way he casts out demons and to heal the way he heals? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth that does all these things? And so the point is this compassionate king is able to respond to whoever, however, as the need arises. And he's come to Capernaum that morning. We read in verse 32 about later that evening. That's what we're taken to now. Verse 32. That evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So here's the scene. He is sitting at their house they hear a noise outside the door at evening and they look and it's basically the whole city has showed up at the front door. Right? You, you imagine when the people left synagogue that morning, what did they do during the afternoon? I mean, if they, if they went around saying what they had saw at church that morning, you imagine some of them went home and thinking, if he can do that, maybe he can help my brother. Maybe he can help my sister, my friend, my neighbor, my spouse, me. So that word spread everywhere so that by evening time, and remember Peter's the voice behind Mark's words, Peter basically tells Mark, listen, that evening it's like the whole city showed up at my door. The entire city had assembled outside of Peter's door that evening. And can I just ask you this? What do you picture that crowd looking like? What does a crowd of people who have come to see Jesus look like? Well, in this scene, I want you to picture that standing outside of Peter's door was a collection of the sick and demon-possessed. I don't know who you picture when you think of the people that come to Jesus. I mean, if you look around this room, what does this crowd look like? At very best, we try to put our lives together and look like our lives are put together. But outside of that door of Peter's house that evening, coming to see Jesus was a crowd of blind and deaf and lepers and lame, a crowd of the insane, a crowd of people who had heard voices in their heads telling them to do things, a crowd of people who were cutting themselves and rolling on the floor and foaming at the mouth. That's the crowd that assembled at Jesus' door. The crowd that came outside of Peter's door that day looked like the waiting room of a hospital or a mental asylum. God had come into town 
And that's the crowd that showed up at the door. Meaning the least and the lowest and the last came and God served them all. Did you hear that? Jesus healed many. Many is almost all. He, he healed all those who came with various diseases. He came and healed all those who were sick in the body and the mind and in their souls who were spiritually oppressed. He healed them all. Jesus had come into town and he had declared the kingdom of God is at hand. And when the king came into town, those who were afflicted and oppressed and held in bondage were set free. The captives were released. The lowest and the least and the last, the unclean and the outsiders, they all came to God's door and God met with them all. This is what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes to town. This is what it looks like when the king showed up. Now surely, as Jesus healed all that night, the whole city, you wonder how late into the night it went. And surely they must have stayed up a little longer after the last one was done talking about what had just happened. I mean, one preacher said, can you imagine the disciples drifting off to sleep that night? I mean, this was day one. Jesus had just said, come follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. They had no idea this is what they were in for. By the end of the day, could you imagine as they were recounting to one another, and then he taught that way in the synagogue, and then the demon guy came, and then this evening the entire city. Do you see the guy with the withered hand? Do you see the blind girl walk away? Do you see that demon-possessed man sit still and calm? I mean, you can imagine them talking to themselves, and you can imagine them saying, what a day, what a way to start with a bang, and you can almost imagine them saying, what will tomorrow be like? What will tomorrow be like indeed? Because if this first day astounds you, then what happens tomorrow will astound you even more. You see, because what happens is you can imagine as these guys drift off to sleep that night wondering what will tomorrow hold, you can imagine how puzzled they were when they woke up, found that the whole city had come back to the door Everybody was there except Jesus. Jesus was nowhere to be found. Look at verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, Everyone is looking for you. Now hear this. There is something to be said here about Jesus' discipline of prayer. And I'm sure that's something we can think through. I mean, you, you do think of it. He has worked late into the night. You wonder how much sleep, if any, did he get. And before everyone woke up, while it was still dark, he crept out of the house. No one heard him. It is something that he goes off in that early morning to pray. And we should think through how that applies. But for this morning, would you consider what Jesus has done here? Before we take it to what this means for us, let's continue to stare at him. And here's what I want you to hear. They see the whole city show up at the door again. They look here and there and everywhere and cannot find him. They finally search Simon, that's Peter, and the disciples. They find him in a desolate place praying. And their question is, everybody is looking for you. Now what's implied in that is, what are you doing here? Right? Right? 
what comes across is they're a bit perturbed. They're, they're flabbergasted. They, they're, they, they can't make sense of this. What are you? Everybody's there looking for you. What on earth are you doing here? The implication is you ought not be here. You should be there. That's where everyone is. If, if I've learned anything from this election cycle of watching the news, it's that momentum is everything, right? Because you dip and go up and down in the polls like that. You have a strong debate night. By the next morning, you better make the news. Because people go up and down like that. So if Jesus of Nazareth is trying to start a movement, this is the time to strike. While the opportunity, you've got to seize that opportunity. You've got to close the deal. The whole city is back to see you, and you're out here. Do you see that it makes no sense, Jesus of Nazareth? It's even more astounding what he says back to them. Look at verse 38. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. They say, everybody is looking for you. And he says, let's leave. Let's skip town. Let's go to the other towns that I may preach, for that is why I have come. Not only are you astonished at the authority of this king, astonished at the priority of this king. He says, let's leave so that I can preach in those other towns, for that is why I have come out. Let me ask you, if tomorrow we could have here a healing ministry or a preaching ministry, and don't give me the religious answer. What I'm saying to you is if tomorrow I could tell you that all the people in Philadelphia were sick could come here and they would walk out healed. And we do it in the name of God. So if you have cancer and you come here, you leave, you have no more cancer. You're blind, you come here, you are not blind when you walk out. Everyone in a hospital bed gets rolled over to here. When they leave, they are healed. So anyone with any sickness comes here and in the name of God, we heal them. And you tell me, we can either take that or I can keep preaching here every Sunday like I do for the last six and a half years. Every sick person in Philadelphia can come here and be healed or we can keep preaching like I've been doing for six and a half years and this will be the crowd we have. Now which, which? Jesus says... The whole city is here looking for you. Let us go into the other towns that I may preach, for that is why I came out. Because I have come out to proclaim the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. I have come to essentially call people to repentance and faith. That is the priority for which I have come out. Would you hear that? When I read this passage, I kept thinking to myself, I mean, isn't Jesus at least afraid that they'll misunderstand him? Because you don't read, at least in the text, you don't read he even comes back to the crowd to clarify or to offer an explanation. They have showed up. And who showed up? Needy people. People he could help. People he could heal. People he could change their lives. They showed up. He doesn't even give them an explanation. He skips town. What is that crowd left that morning thinking? 
Isn't he worried that they're going to misunderstand him or start speaking bad of him? Who is this king that strolls into town and when we needed him, he didn't even have the decency to show up? Let us go into the next towns that I may preach, for that is why I come. You want to ask, doesn't Jesus love these people? He loves them more than they know. Because he has come to meet a need more than they're aware of. Hear me. It's not that he doesn't love them. He has shown his compassion. A sick mother-in-law with a fever, he'll heal. He'll stay up into the night hours healing. But here, he wants you to hear this. All the people he healed got sick again. Do you hear that? Every lame person who couldn't walk eventually was laid down in a bed again. Every blind person who couldn't see who he healed eventually closed their eyes in death again. Every person he ever healed died again. I mean, I think of Lazarus. This guy has come back from the grave. What was it like to lie on a deathbed a second time? Because he's going to die again. And Jesus is saying here, I have not come ultimately to bring temporary healing but permanent healing. I have come to offer not just temporary life, but eternal life. And for that to happen, I cannot be sidetracked by the crowds. I have a purpose, and the purpose the Father has given me is to go from town to town proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. I have come ultimately to give this gospel to sinners and then to die for sinners. Because in my death, I will secure for them not temporary, but permanent life and healing. By his wounds, we will eternally be healed. And Jesus would not let anything drift him off that mission. Would you hear that? In fact, three times in the gospel according to Mark, Jesus is seen praying. Three times. One here, once in the middle, once at the end. And all three times, there's sort of a temptation for Jesus to get sidetracked. That's when he goes and prays. Here, he prays in solitude by himself. Mark 6, the people are so for him, they want to force him to become king. Jesus will withdraw and pray. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he'll fight that temptation of whether or not he should go to the cross, he'll withdraw and in solitude meet with his father and pray. Every time there's a temptation to distract him from what he came for. And listen to me. He is not calloused. Should we not be grateful that he had you in mind this morning when he chose not to go back to Capernaum? Because your salvation meant that he had to stay on the mission that his father gave him. Your salvation meant that he would have to continue to proclaim the gospel and die for sinners so that all might be eternally saved. He cares about your immediate circumstance. He does. But moreover, he has given his life to, to secure for you your eternal life. Should we not be grateful that Jesus was willing to be misunderstood so that he might do what was ultimately right for you and for me? and even for the people at Capernaum that morning. So, having seen a day in the life of Jesus, here's how I want to 
pray and ask you to respond. It's that we should respond like the people of Capernaum and we should respond better than the people of Capernaum. Here's what I mean. We should, like the people of Capernaum, be astounded by him. Seeing him afresh, seeing him with his authority, seeing him heal and cast out demons and speak, seeing him afresh and his priority and his authority, we should afresh be astonished, amazed, astounded by Jesus. But we should go one step further, which is the people of Capernaum that morning, they came for what they could get out of him. But they didn't get who he was fully and what he had fully come for, which is to call them to repent and believe. There were many miracles done in Capernaum that morning. What you don't read is of a disciple that says, I get all the miracles, but what I really get is, you have come to call us to repentance and faith. That's what I want to do. I want to follow you as your disciple. Many miracles in Capernaum, no disciples picked up. So we have to respond one more than Capernaum and say, Lord Jesus, I have all this stuff I need you to do. But you have come to preach the gospel, to call a sinful heart to repentance and faith. And that's what I want to do afresh and anew. I want to be astounded and amazed by you, drawn to you in such a way that I renew repentance and faith and follow you. Let's pray together.